BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Priya David Clemens, coming up on Forum. When we're shopping for clothes, we've come to expect a multitude of style options and lightning-fast delivery, all for a low price. Author and sustainability expert Maxine Beda traveled the world to follow the life cycle of our clothing. She shares her journey and learnings with us today. And then... Californians are having such a hard time contacting the state's unemployment agency that some are paying go-betweens to break through jammed phone lines. Join us to share your experiences with EDD. Those conversations are coming up right after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum here on KQED. I'm Priya David Clemens, your guest host for today, filling in for Mina Kim, who's on a well-deserved week off. Today we're talking about clothing. In her new book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment, author Maxine Beda explores the complex world of how clothes end up on our bodies and what happens when we donate them. Maxine Beda is the founder and director of New Standard Institute, which is focused on improving sustainability in the garment industry. She's also an ambassador at the Rainforest Alliance and has spoken at the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and the Clinton Global Initiative. Maxine, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. For those of you listening, if you'd like to join the conversation with a comment about the clothing industry or a question for Maxine Beda, please give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Maxine Veda, you have had a love of fashion since you were a little girl. Why were you so captivated by clothing? Oh, I mean, at the get-go, I think you know, it was 
a relationship I had with my mother and we would go shopping together and it was a special moment. And my um, mother is a, a fabulous dresser. And I just saw how uh, the clothing we wore helped us, you know, define ourselves and was kind of this armor that we would put on ourselves, um, you know, to represent our day and, and our aspirations for the day. And so I always um, had an interest in clothing, uh, but I, I certainly didn't uh, start my career there. <laughs> you were an attorney, actually, for some time. Um, yes, I, I uh, was in law and working kind of on on both the uh, corporate side of things, and then the the human rights side of things, trying to figure out which path I wanted to take. Well, you started a sustainable fashion company, and you quickly learned that it would be hard to make it work the way you wanted it to work. What did you find out? Yeah, so in starting um, uh, Zadie, which was the company that predated the work that I'm doing now at the New Standard Institute, what we first endeavored to do was to kind of create the whole foods of fashion. So um, telling the stories behind the products that we sold. And what we found in trying to do that exercise was that we couldn't find companies that actually knew the whole story of their clothing. And so what we ended up doing at Zadie was endeavoring to do that ourselves. And uh, we started, you know, everything was produced domestically from the cotton to the wool, you know, all of it happened um, in the U.S., places that we could visit and understand the impact. And we just very um, quickly realized that, you know, as we were trying to educate our own customers, that the industry itself didn't know its own impact. They were learning this hmm. um, along with us. Well, for this book, you follow the life cycle of a pair of jeans, starting with a cotton seed, and you begin your journey, which ends up taking you around the world. Um, you begin it in Texas. Would you take a few moments to walk us through that journey with you? Sure. So I think, um, you know, first, the story of jeans is very much embedded in, in the story of San Francisco, um, you know, with, with Levi's and, and Gap. Um, but but the story of um, kind of the typical pair of jeans today is very different from the origin story. Uh, it, it starts in a in a cotton field. That part hasn't changed. Um, although what has changed is now there's probably some synthetic material. So the origin is uh, you know an oil rig as well as a cotton field. Hmm. Um, but you know it, it starts in a cotton field. I, I chose Texas. Tex um, the United States is the third largest um, cotton producing country. Uh, globally in Texas, um, in the place that I spent my time, Lubbock in Western Texas is kind of the cotton um, heart of uh, the United States. And then it'll, after it's um, harvested and ginned, um, and ginning, of course, is kind of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the creation of the invention of the gin. Um, it is shipped in a bale. Um, and there I went to uh, to China, which is the largest textile producing country globally, to understand uh, what happens and how that cotton and polyester fiber um, is spun uh, into yarn, woven into a textile, um, dyed and finished into, um, you know, the, the piece of fabric that will eventually become our clothing. From there, it'll go to a, a country like um, either stay in China or go to a country like uh, Bangladesh, which is Bangladesh and Sri Lanka is um, uh, where the book goes to really look at how the cut and sew happens and really speak to the people because the creation of um, genes and the cut and sew process is very much a human process. And the way in which clothing has been produced hasn't changed 
much in the past 100 years. So it's still, um, you know, much in the same way, a, a factory floor with a, a production line of up to 50 people, um, each sitting behind a sewing machine and each taking one piece and doing um, one component of the clothing creation process over and over and over and over and over again. Um, it's a very mind numbing job. Um, and then from uh, Bangladesh, we go back to the U.S. Um, to uh, the distrib distribution. And the, there's a chapter there that focuses in on Amazon because Amazon today is now the largest apparel retailer in the country in terms of number of shoppers. Um, and, you know, um, think about the, the lives of the workers there. And then it, you know, uh, stops in our closet for um, somewhat of a brief moment in the whole journey of the clothing. Um, and then, you know, we're either throwing our clothing away or we're donating it, um, which we tend to think of as uh, something positive, but um, very little of that clothing that we donate is actually ever resold um, domestically. It is more often than not um, bailed up <laughs> in the same shape as the cotton uh, as it started um, and sent to the developing world, the global South, um, where it ends up becoming um, the problem for you know, those countries to contend with. And so what you've been describing has been sort of the physical journey of these materials as they go around the world. We all know we live in a global economy now. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, your book certainly outlines problems that you see throughout the market system, uh, starting right there in Texas. Yeah, I think what clothing, you know, the story of clothing demonstrates is this sort of extreme capitalism that we have found ourselves in. Um, you know, it's it's a story, you know, through the creation and journey of genes, we get into globalization, we get into the growth of, you know, domestic income inequality and the climate crisis and automation and decline of unions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think... Um, you know, we can really understand our entire world through through the through our story of genes and how when we only think about profit maximization and kind of use that language, that business school language, you know, that in my business, I got to take a couple of classes in the business school. When you think about efficiency, that sort of easy language of efficiency, um, what we're neglecting. Thing, um, to take into account is the environmental and human toll um, of all of that efficiency. And I think, you know, that in the, the thrust of the book is, is um, you know, what I'm trying to highlight and su uh, suggest that we need to change. And your, your book actually covers some history as well. It goes back centuries to explain how the modern clothing industry developed. Could you briefly talk with us about how ready-to-wear clothing came to be and why that in itself was such a major development? Yeah, so I, I went into the history because I think in order to get to the root cause of the, the problems of the, you know, of our time, we have to understand how they got that way, because that's the only way we can really come up with the right solutions. So I think, you know, first, just if we zoom out in history, um, there's been a couple of massive sea changes in, in the past 20 years, 50 years, and 100 years from how clothing was for millennia before that. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, we, you know, our uh, forebears uh, 
wore clothing that came from a farm or a ranch. It was all natural fibers up until about 50 years ago. And now today, um, most of our clothing, uh, the largest uh, fiber um, is polyester, is a synthetic garment made from fossil fuels. It's a plastic fiber. Um, so that has been a big change that has taken place. And then, you know, um, the, the other significant change that has taken place is that um, it was women mostly who uh, sewed clothing in, in their homes. Um, and that shifted with the industrial revolution. And, um, you know, the story of our clothing um, is also the story of slavery and colonialism and uh, cotton, as uh, we all know, should know, um, you know, is um, was a significant driver in the United States and globally um, of the institution of slavery. Um, and uh, the Industrial Revolution just increased the demand for cotton. So just um, increased uh, enlarged the institution of slavery as well. Um, but through the Industrial Revolution, um, women stopped making garments in their home, and instead um, women went to factories. And it was actually women working in factories um, in New York uh, that started kind of the basic labor protections that we think of today. They uh, were demanding basic things and created basic concepts like the weekend that we benefit from today. Um, and so, you know, that was the kind of rise of ready to wear was this whole idea that clothing wasn't made in the home, something that you tended to and had to produce yourself, um, but something that was going to be produced for you by somebody else. And Maxine, we've got a few comments coming in now as well. Pam writes, for the past decade, fast fashion has made clothes out of the thinnest, least durable fabrics they have. This is so frustrating and it makes it harder to buy secondhand since flimsy fabric gets holes in them within a few wearings. We are talking this morning about sustainability in the garment industry with advocate Maxine Beda about her new book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. She's also the founder and director of New Standard Institute, a think-and-do tank dedicated to turning industry into a force for good. What about you? What are your questions and concerns about clothing manufacturing and sustainability? How do you shop for clothes? How does sustainability factor into what you buy? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm your guest host, Priya David Clemens, filling in for Mina Kim, and we are talking with sustainability advocate Maxine Beda about her new book, Unraveled the Life and Death of a Garment. Maxine, you were just talking about how women began working outside of the home, and that triggered a new phase in garment development. Yes, exactly. Uh, women uh, left the home to start working in factories, um, in uh, textile and cut and sew factories. Uh, in uh, largely in New York City. Um, and it was those factory workers that fought for uh, some of the basic uh, labor protections um, that then kind of were set out nationally um, in the New Deal era. And some of those labor protections uh, ended up making the United States less competitive for clothing manufacturing, but you still advocate for more unionization. Uh, wouldn't that have sort of the same effect here and globally? Yeah, so I think um, unionization, we have to we have to think about the context. So there are some jobs that can't be outsourced, such as the work of the Amazon distribution. It is very uh, regionally focused by design. Um, so that isn't something that um, if you had a union there that there would be uh, make much competition. That isn't the case, of course, with uh, clothing production, as we have seen. Um, and so, you know, we have this case of in the 1960s, 95 percent of what Americans wore was American made. And then um, today it is less than two percent. Um, and it um, when we think about unions in that context, we also have to think about the, the global uh, trade relationships that we've developed. And so what I argue in the book, and this is the work that we are doing at the New Standard Institute, is we really have to have you know, a global level playing field so that we're not pitting uh, workers domestically against workers um, abroad. And mm -hmm. so we can uh, very much integrate labor standards and environmental standards, for that matter, in our trade deals um, so that this isn't doesn't become, you know, the, the race to the bottom for the, the worst conditions globally. Yeah, you know, a listener has written in so many garment workers in countries like Indonesia and Bangladesh work in essentially sweatshops at little to no pay by their Western corporate owners to produce most of the world's clothes. How can we center their struggle and contribution, which often gets erased in the sustainability discussion, where we think only recycling fabrics is enough to make clothes ethical? Yeah, I think that um, listener makes a very important point, and and the book is really trying to tell the stories of the people that have been, you know, put in the shadows of society, um, and you know, I think we can, we can, you know, again change these policies uh, so that workers can have a living wage. And you know what? You know, the research is finding that that actually wouldn't um, significantly increase the cost of our own clothing um, in order to do that. So I think if we can have a system um, that clothing is affordable to us um, and is creating a living wage, why wouldn't we want that? Mm -hmm. And when you say it wouldn't cost much more, you're talking about really pennies um, on the dollar here. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the, the researchers are saying it's, you know, 15 cents, something like that um, would be an increase of a, a cost of a t-shirt to, to provide a living wage. And that's even assuming that the consumer, the customer is absorbing that cost. I think the other part that we kind of um, neglect to realize uh, is just how much, you know, wealth concentration there is within the fashion industry. If you look at the 
Forbes billionaire list. Of course, there's um, people in technology, um, but there are a significant amount of people um, that are in the industry of selling clothing. And so the the wealth accumulation is really just rising to the top as um, you know, the workers actually producing the goods um, are, are paid pretty miserable wages. I'm going to go to the phones in just a moment. But before we do that, would you tell us all about the story of Rima, the garment worker you write about in your book from Bangladesh, who works long hours but still can't make a living wage? Yes. Yeah, so I, I got to meet Rima. She was kind enough to um, welcome me into her home, um, which is in uh, uh, Dhaka. Um, it um, her home, she lives with, uh, she's a family of four. So her husband and her two kids, um, the home itself was smaller than my New York bathroom, which is Mm. already not very large. Um, and you know, there was, uh, one bed, um, and you know, one person could stand up and barely kind of put their arms out. Um, you know, that was the space, um, in which she had to live on in a, roof in a um in a very rainy country um and uh you know rima described her her job to me and you know i'm not somebody that has had to do a lot of manual labor in in um my working life um and i haven't ever had to do the kind of automated work that she described um and so i just you know i i asked her kind of she she talked about the work that she did as a sewer and you know these production lines are industrial engineered for efficiency so that um, each person is timed by the second of how long it takes for them to do their component of the, you know, let's say a pair of jeans. Um, And so she's just doing the same, same movement over and over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, I spoke to psychologists and, and read research just about, you know, how devastating this kind of work is. But I, I asked her like, what are you thinking about? You know, I kind of assumed, you know, that she was like railing against the system as she was, you know, doing this. But, you know, at in that space, I was sitting on her bed and she was sitting in a chair um, and I was sitting on the bed with um, the translator. And as I asked her this, there was like this confused look on her face and kind of a lot of talk between the translator um, and Rima. And, um, and then, you know, the clear, she was just confused by my question. Um, and that was, ultimately, because she said, I'm not thinking, you know, the the only thought in my head is like, do not make a mistake, keep going faster, do not Mm. make a mistake, keep going faster, do not make a mistake. And that just dehumanizing work, which by the way, isn't just in the garment um, factories, it's in the distribution work at, you know, in the Amazon facilities here in the US, it's a very similar type of, um, if maximum efficiency maximization, um, that was just incredibly, you know, devastating to hear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. Let's go to the phones now. Art, you're calling in from Clear Lake. Yes, hello and thank you. Uh, I just want to know, is child labor still being implemented in China? Thanks for your call, Art. Yeah, um, so uh, child labor is still endemic um, in the fashion industry um, and of course, it's very hard to track these things. The U.S. Department of Labor um, does track these things and have noted that in the major garment producing countries, um, child enforced labor uh, is seen. Um, and it's because you have to think about um, the garment sector. It's 
not very difficult, uh, not very resource intensive, unlike, you know, the tech sector to start a, a garment factory it can happen at a large scale, can happen in a home. Um, and so it's an industry that can um, very much be in the shadows, which is um, why, you know, without sufficient regulation, you end up seeing things like child labor and forced labor within the garment industry. Thank you. Let's go to Dan now calling from Petaluma. Dan, you're on the line. Hi, I was just wondering, there's companies like Patagonia really uh, tout their uh, clothing as being sustainable and fair trade certified. I was just wondering if your guests knew anything about that and whether that's a real thing and it really makes a difference. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, and just to expand on that, Patagonia is certainly one example, but is there a way to know that the clothing clothing that we've purchased um, is not produced through these means? It's very difficult. Um, and there isn't, um, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a standard um, that we can look to that says, you know, this means sustainable. And so there are companies that, you know, are, are making important efforts, and I would include Patagonia um, within, within those uh, small list of companies. Um, you know, no company is perfect. Um, and I think, you know, what what we're looking to do and what the book the book outlines and the work that I do at the New Standard Institute is really to move to a place where it's not on the customer's responsibility um, to do a, a deep dive investigation um, with very leading to, to no results, but um, to create as policy, um, as legislation, a requirement that uh, companies are disclosing with clear information what their environmental and social impact is and setting targets to reduce that negative impact. Because that's the only way we're going to actually be able to make measurable progress um, rather than kind of this place we're in now with these sort of vague sustainability claims. Yeah. All right. Let's go to another caller now. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're on the line from San Mateo. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I love this program. I've been trying really hard for the past year and a half to only buy clothes secondhand. But the thorn in my side has really been um, bridesmaids dresses. I've been asked to be a bridesmaid in maybe seven to eight weddings for this coming year. And understandably, all of them want me to buy a new dress. And unfortunately, all of these are imported, super expensive and have little to no sustainability. And I've tried to get people to let me get them on Poshmark or, um, you know, secondhand somehow, but just can't get that ball rolling. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about formal wear and recycling and reuse or sustainable brands that I might be able to point people to. And I'll take my call off the air. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Any thoughts on this, Maxine, the this need for specific clothing for formal, special occasions? Yeah, I think the caller, um, you know, highlights a, a big uh, hole <laughs> in the um, in the industry and kind of that um, uh, bridal party uh, clothing. Um, I, I would hope that the, you know, culture is, is moving away from, you know, those everybody wearing um, matching things to, you know, prov- allowing people to have options like things from Rent the Runway or these sort of rental services, which I think are um, really best suited for these kind of one-off occasions. Um, but there isn't, yeah, there isn't a simple um, answer to that. But I, I give 
great kudos for, you know, to the caller that um, her, her regular clothing that she's seeking secondhand, I think that she can rest well that, you know, her overall um, impact is, is really greatly reduced. Yeah, Pamela writes in along these lines saying, I get all my clothes at cheap resale stores like Ross for Less. I used to go to secondhand stores in good neighborhoods because often people get rid of clothes after wearing it once or twice. Since the pandemic, I have not used those stores. I personally never buy new for the reasons your guest mentioned. And Susan writes in asking, I I only want to buy American-made clothing from the cotton industry. Where can I find those? Oh, that's not uh, that easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it's not um, it's not a, a simple thing because you know you can if you if your goal is to be made in America, it's not just about where the cotton is coming from. It's um, you know where is the where is it being woven, um, spun, knit, um, and and cut and sewn. And there's not um, there's there are just not a lot of options. So that is that is not easy. Any advice on which direction to look? Um, you know, I think uh, you can always do a good old uh, Google search. Um, you know, and and I, I, what I would just say is like just um, you know be careful with kind of made in America claims to know that it's the whole supply chain. I know, like um, on a garment, uh, it only has one country, but you know, as we just already kind of walked through there, it tends to not be one country that is producing the whole garment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, you know, just one kind of this touches on one area, which is that I think people tend to think, you know, they can visualize the world. And so they think that the transportation is a large part of um, the climate impact and the environmental impact. But um, it's actually it's actually a small part of the whole transportation is not a significant part of the um, environmental impact, especially if the product is being shipped. Mm. Um, the real kind of um, area that we have to think about with, in terms of climate is at the actual textile mill. That's the real kind of carbon hotspot. So um, I don't know, you know, what the motivating reasons why the um, caller was, you know, referencing Made in America. But um, if it's to address, you know, climate change and environmental impacts, then I think we should think about things in a little bit of a different way. Okay. You know, I want to talk with you about what can be done. So let's turn to that for a moment now. One, there is certainly the consumer side. Two, it's consumers banding together to look at policy changes for the industry and governmental intervention. Where do you think we should be working and focusing our efforts in these two prongs? Yeah. So, um, you know, as you laid out so nicely, it, it really is, it is two pronged. And I think there's often a discussion within sustainability circles, like whose responsibility is it? Is it the consumer? Is it the brand? Is it government? You know, and it, we all live in the system together. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think, and the, they're, you know, companies at the moment are, are profit maximizing entities. So they're not going to change um, by themselves. There's certainly not all of them. And, and we need them all to change in order to, uh, you know, live in a, a, a planet that isn't drowning. Um, um, and it really is as simple as that. And so, you know, we need to address the policy and push for the policy. And that is the work um, that we are doing at the New Standard Institute and would really welcome um, participation um, and support in, in that area to basically um, build upon 
you know, what we have done in the US in terms of the environmental standards and the, the labor protections, there's still um, even domestically uh, ways to go, um, but build off of that and include these um, standards within our you know, global trade regime. Um, and that is very much a possibility and would very dramatically um, move from you know, this race to the bottom to a real you know, race to the top that we can um, you know, m- move production not move production, keep production where it is, but that it's, um, you know, with high environmental standards and with, you know, sufficient labor protections. I'd like to go back to another couple comments now. Sandy writes, in rural Minnesota of the 1920s and 1930s, my grandmother, Lydia, would resize clothes of the older children for the younger, make new clothes for the older children and parents. When I was born, she made me a baby quilt. As her grandchild in the 1950s, she always sewed new dresses for me. I still have those items. They are of a better quality than anything I can buy. And Nancy writes, I buy most of my clothes on eBay, beautiful sweaters, for example, for much less than new. Of course, the latest fashion is not obtainable in this way, but for classics, it's the only way for me. I do buy jeans new, but have a pair that is 16 years old, patched and often worn. We just have a few moments here left together, but I'm curious, do you have a favorite pair of jeans, Maxine? Do you still wear jeans? I'm wearing jeans right now. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, and I do. I think um, like that um, person who wrote in, I have a pair of jeans that um, are 15 years old, not the ones that I'm wearing right now, um, although I've lived in these jeans for about the past three years, but have that pair that's 15 years old that I've, I've gotten um, fixed um, and still love them. And I think, you know, talking about what you were saying about, you know, there's the policy that we can change and then there's our individual relationship. And it's really an invitation to love our clothing again. This isn't shouldn't be about a sacrifice and, you know, that we can't have things that we don't like. It's actually an invitation to block out the noise of the marketers and to re-engage with our own wardrobes mm. and find out what we really like and lean into that. And if we love our clothing, we're going to wear our clothing more. And that's the biggest driver of impact reduction is just wearing our clothing more. So it's an invitation to really love our things and, you know, not get duped by the marketers. Thank you so much for your time. We have been speaking with author Maxine Beda about her new book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment, which explores the life cycling of our clothing. We appreciate you coming on the show, Maxine. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, more than a year into a pandemic that's left millions of Californians jobless, it's harder than ever to reach the state's Employment Development Department. New services are stepping in to help people contact the EDD for a price. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.